Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with students, postdocs, and other virologists so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I'm hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On June 14th, 2022, we talked with Hannah Wallace, a graduate student at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland, and Labrador in Canada. She did her Bachelor of Science at the University of New Brunswick, St. John. Currently, she studies a process of virus-induced cell death called pyroptosis induced by hepatitis C virus. Thanks for talking with us today. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So my name is Hannah Wallace. Uh, I'm a graduate student in the lab of Dr. Rod Russell at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. Um, And my work focuses mostly on virus-induced cell death. Specifically, I look at hepatitis C virus-induced pyroptosis. So pyroptosis is an inflammatory form of cell death. And we've seen that that happens in cell culture, in cells infected with hep C. And that also happens alongside apoptosis. So we have both kinds of cell death happening. Um, And then we also noticed this interesting phenomenon just before I got to the lab of what we call bystander pyroptosis. So that's cells, like if you take your, you know, your dish of cells, your liver cells, and you infect them with hep C, your infected cells die by apoptosis and pyroptosis. But there are also cells in that culture dish that are not infected with hep C that still die by pyroptosis. And we've determined that that is contact independent. So it's cell-cell contact independent. Um, That also happens with apoptosis, but the cells need to be in contact for it to happen. So most of my research is working on trying to understand how that mechanism of bystander pyroptosis happens and whether that has an effect on the pathogenesis in hep C infection. Okay. And can you tell us sort of how you, um, what kind of studies that you do, like what kind of techniques do you actually do to um, look at uh, those, the various features in a way? Yeah. So everything we do is in vitro since there's not a great animal model for hep C, unfortunately. Um, And then I do a lot of immunofluorescence. That's probably my favorite technique that I use. Also do some Western blots, not as much my favorite. Um, And I also do quite a bit of flow cytometry. Okay. Um, And can you tell us, I guess, a little bit of background about the process that you're studying? So not just with hepatitis C, but sort of what's known about it in general. Like about cell death? Yeah, yeah, like the two processes, the two types of cell death that you're studying. Yeah, so apoptosis is like very well characterized, induced by many viruses. Um, so it's non-inflammatory generally kind of cell death. And they both, both apoptosis and pyroptosis have these very distinct pathways and distinct uh, molecules and proteins that they use. And so you can characterize them by seeing the activation of certain proteins um, within the cell. So one of the markers we use for apoptosis is caspase three and a marker for pyroptosis is caspase one. And so basically we're looking for changes um, in the activation of those caspases along with some other markers. And pyroptosis is really interesting to us because it's inflammatory. So the cell ends up lysing at the end And we really think that that probably contributes to a lot of the pathogenesis that we see with hep C infection. And 
we're really interested in that bystander paraptosis, like I mentioned, because, you know, hepatocytes themselves are not particularly inflammatory in nature, um, unlike pyroptosis that's been studied maybe in macrophages, which is very well characterized. So we actually have some preliminary data that if we culture liver cells that are infected with hep C and macrophages together, um, the macrophages also seem to die by pyroptosis. And so there's also this recorded phenomenon in the literature of people who have been cured of hep C, which is awesome. They don't have any detectable virus but then they still have really heightened levels of molecules associated with pyroptosis. So it seems like there's still ongoing pyroptosis to, despite the fact that these people have been cured. And so we're wondering if that bystander pyroptosis might actually be happening in immune cells and that might be contributing to that inflammation state um, that keeps happening even after people are cured. Interesting. And what would be like, how, how would the inflammation continue? What would be the stimuli for it to be continuing? Awesome question. So we think that, well, we know, sorry, in pyroptosis that there's, it's mediated by this big protein complex that's called the inflammasome. It kind of looks like a ninja star. That's what we <laughs> like to call it. Um, and basically when the cell lyses, if that's triggered from the internal kind of pyroptosis sensors, um, like NLRP3 is a common one that's studied. And so then this protein complex forms. And when the cell lyses, it, that complex is actually released into the extracellular space. So we think that there's probably some sort of like non-traditional triggering of pyroptosis in the bystander cells by this protein complex itself. I see. And that would just continue in these people that had been so-called cured of HCV. Yeah. And then if you, you know, if you if that gets triggered in a macrophage, let's say, then that's going to release more inflammatory cytokines as well, which is also going to contribute in another way. Like it'll kind of just keep cycling and become its own. Yeah. Just continual cycle. Cool. Um, so I guess taking a step back, can you sort of take us back to when you first started to be interested in science and virology? How did that happen for you? Okay. I, I, I love telling this story because it's kind of I think it's a little bit different. Um, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a paleontologist for a long time. So I always liked science. So my parents are not totally surprised that I ended up in a science field. Um, but I went to do my undergrad and a lot of science majors. I thought I wanted to go to medical school, you know, the prestige of that kind of, and I wanted to be able to do something that would help people. So I was sitting in my first year biology class with the most wonderful professor that I've ever had, Barb Dowding. She um, isn't even a PhD. She has a master's and she's just an amazing lecturer. And this was in the winter of 2014. So the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa had just started. And so she really thought it was important to talk about world events and stuff within the context of biology. So she talked about the Ebola epidemic in that class and I was fascinated with this. And so fast forward to the last year of my undergrad, um, I did it what we called an independent study with Barb. And so basically it was just write a 25 page review paper on whatever topic you wanted. And I chose Ebola. And at the same time I was doing an honors project on fish physiology. <laughs> um, again, thinking that would help me maybe get into medical school. And I didn't love the fish work particularly, but I kind of fell in love with the process of research and I was able to go to a conference and we published a paper and I just really enjoyed that. And so I kind of figured out that 
viruses plus research are two things that I really, really like. And then when I started applying to master's programs, I had a hard time finding somebody that would take me as a student because I didn't have a ton of microbiology background. Um, that wasn't even an option as like a, a major at the place where I did my undergrad in New Brunswick. So um, Rod Russell is here at Memorial and they also don't have a microbiology major. So he was very willing to just teach me and took me on and started working on hep C. Um, and I also do a little bit of avian influenza now and he's really let me branch out and kind of try some things. And so, yeah, that's how I got into virology. <laughs> Cool. And um, I guess, um, can you tell us a little bit about sort of the composition of your labs or like who's in it? You know, um, what, what, what are the interactions that you have in your lab? Yeah. So we have a fairly small program here. It, like MUN is not a, a gigantic university by any means. Um, so most of the labs have somewhere between two, three to eight students, like they're mostly pretty small. So right now um, I'm kind of the most senior student in our lab. So I'm hoping to be done my PhD in about a year. Um, of course, that's always, you know, the timelines are flexible. Um, then we have another PhD student who's co-supervised. So she's partly in our lab, partly in another lab. We have a PhD, another PhD student who works full-time for the public health lab. So he's been very busy during the pandemic because he does all of the diagnostic like development. So um, we don't see him a ton right now because of course he's been very busy with COVID and now of course is developing a monkeypox assay as well. Then we have a research assistant who is fantastic. Our lab would not run without her. <laughs> um, and then we have a couple of master students who are fairly new and just starting. Cool. And you mentioned that you're sort of getting towards the end of your PhD. What are your thoughts for your next steps? Uh, what are you interested in doing? Yeah, so I definitely want to do a postdoc. Uh, and then I do want to be a PI eventually, which, you know, is one of those ambitious dreams. But I think, like, I love the process of science, of course, but having those fantastic mentors that I had in my undergrad, I want to be able to do that for the next generation and like hopefully inspire students that were like me and just really fascinated with something. And I think that's really important. And I think having good mentors is really important as well. And so I want to be able to do that for the next generation of scientists. Great. And do you have any idea sort of what uh, topic or area that you're interested in doing a postdoc in? Yeah, so I love the pathogenesis aspect of my work. Um, so I definitely want to continue with some sort of molecular pathogenesis. I also do really like the cell death component of our work. Um, and there's actually not a lot of virologists in Canada that do virus-induced cell death. There's like maybe four. Um, so I'm hoping to take a little bit of that, what I've learned in my PhD, and hopefully take it somewhere else. And then I am really interested in emerging viruses like Ebola and Nipah and some of those. So I'm hoping to incorporate some more like high containment work into my postdoc. Cool. And um, are you wanting to stay in Canada or are you sort of open to uh, going elsewhere? Um, at least for now, I'm going to be staying in Canada. Um, my partner is also a microbiologist. So he uh, does some avian influenza work like surveillance and stuff, but he also does uh, antimicrobial resistance work. And so um, 
I think the easiest thing for the two of us to coordinate together is going to be staying in Canada, at least for now. Um, and then I think we want to eventually end up back in Canada. Both our families are on the East Coast and, you know, we really like it here. We love the ocean. So, but we'll see. It'll be wherever we can get jobs, of course. <laughs> yeah. So actually, can you, um, I, I think some of our listeners may be less familiar with sort of how uh, science in Canada works and sort of the funding mechanisms and things like that. So can you talk a little bit about that? So how do you, how does one set up a lab in Canada? How do you actually get um, funding, that kind of thing? Yeah, so there is federal funding. Um, basically, there's, it's divided into three categories. So there's um, like health sciences, there is natural sciences and engineering, and then there's like social sciences. Um, and then basically when you go to have your lab, you usually get a startup fund with, um, wherever you're going and different from the U S is your grants. Don't just like, you don't get paid out of your grant. Whereas I know some universities in the U S that happens. Um, so there's your salaried at, a university in Canada, and then you're expected to get grants. Um, some places will put kind of things in place. So, you know, you have to get grants in order to keep your lab space. And if you don't get your grants, then you lose space. Um, but you don't lose your job, which is nice. Um, yeah. And then there's also smaller funding agencies like um, I know lots of people are funded from the, the Canadian Cancer Society or the Alzheimer's Society, things like that. But a lot of it comes from the federal, those three federal funding pools. Okay. And do you, are you expected to teach in an exchange for sort of your salary? Is that sort of the quid pro quo? Yeah. So you're expected to do some teaching and some service as well, but that also is very highly dependent on like what department you're in. So even here in at MUN, my supervisors in the faculty of medicine and my partner supervisors in the faculty of biology, and they have very different teaching load expectations. So my partner's supervisor teaches two full undergrad courses every year, whereas my supervisor teaches like, like a handful of classes to the medical students and a handful to the graduate students. So there's definitely differences depending on where you are. And there's also, I think, and I think it's a good thing moving towards having tenure track positions that are focused on teaching, because as we know, you know, lots of PIs should not be teaching and don't enjoy teaching. And so, you know, why make students have someone that doesn't want to engage, doesn't want to be part of that process. Um, so I think that's a really good thing that's starting to happen in Canada, but it's, it's rare still. Right. Um, and then I guess to finish up, can you sort of reflect what it's been like for the last two years or so during the pandemic? How has that affected you professionally, but also personally? Yeah, so I mean, personally, it's been hard because I, you know, I'm in Newfoundland. So Newfoundland's an island off the east coast of Canada, and my family's on the mainland. And for a lot of the first year, a lot of 2020, we couldn't even travel interprovincially. So we have provinces, unlike the US has states, um, and they really closed all of the borders between the provinces. So I didn't see my family for quite a long time. So that was a little difficult. Thankfully, my partner's parents are in Newfoundland and they're lovely. So I had family around, just not my own. Um, so that was kind of weird. I mean, the other thing, I think just being a virologist during this time, Time when everybody suddenly knew what viruses were was kind of bizarre. Uh, 
you know, I started getting a lot of messages on Instagram and Facebook and a lot of questions. And so I started, you know, kind of answering them on social media and tried to do a little bit of engagement because our university took a really conservative approach to how they dealt with the pandemic. So we actually went through two full lockdowns of three to four months that we weren't like, we weren't allowed to go into the lab at all. Um, not even to like maintain cells. A lot of people had to call their animals. Um, it was a little bit rough. <laughs> um, and you know, it's frowned upon to grow viruses at your house. So, you know, it was hard to get work done other than doing some writing. So I did start to do a lot of science communication. So I've been really lucky to have been on a couple of podcasts and done some interviews. Um, I've done some TV and radio local interviews, which has been really awesome. Uh, I think science communication is really important. And I think podcasts like this are important for that same reason, especially because I think it became really abundantly clear during the pandemic that the public sees science as this inaccessible kind of mystery world. And I think it shouldn't be, especially in Canada, where so much of our funding comes from taxpayer dollars. I think we should be incorporating science communication a lot more. Um, so I think that was probably the biggest thing was just kind of changing what I was doing and taking on the science communication roles. But that's been something that I've really enjoyed as we've gone through. And what is it like there now? So obviously, you know, different countries are going through different surges of variants. And um, at least in the U.S., there's almost like no masking whatsoever. What's it like there in Newfoundland? So we only uh, took masks away in March, I think, April. It's fairly recently. Um, but there's a very high proportion of the population vaccinated in Newfoundland. So it's above 90% in the adult population, which is amazing. Uh, we have a very old population, well, an older population here. Uh, it's one of the oldest populations in Canada. So I think there was a lot of push to get that older population vaccinated to protect them. And I would say, like, if you go to the grocery store now, there's probably like 50% of people still wearing masks, which, you know, is pretty good. I was just in Alberta, which is on the west coast of Canada, uh, much less masking there. It's a little bit more similar to places in the U.S. and it has the highest like seroprevalence in the country as well. So it was kind of interesting to see that difference um, between the two coasts. But in Newfoundland, it's it's been pretty good. We have only, you know, there hasn't been a ton of deaths they were very conservative. The, the government was really, really conservative, especially before vaccines rolled out. Right, right. Great. Well, um, uh, I guess one other question. Are you presenting your work at ASV? I am. So I'm presenting the bystander proptosis work at ASV and doing a poster. And it's my first ASV. So I'd love if people came to talk to me because I won't really know anybody. And my supervisor is also not going with me. So I would love to meet everybody in person. Great, great. Well, we look forward to seeing your work in, in your poster um, and uh, uh, good luck on your travels. Um, <laughs> we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackeray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, and other podcast providers or at lmtv.podbean.com. Thank you.